to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, Disney has announced that they're going to be raising the prices of their streaming services. If you want ad-free Disney+, Plus, it'll now cost $13.99 per month, which at face value isn't bad, but it's actually a 27% increase. Which is pretty steep. I mean, if they continued at that pace every year or every other year, it would cost $50, $60, $70 a month in no time. These studios are trying to find ways to make up the shortfall of revenue. Because in the past few years, to get the quick buck, they've shot themselves in the foot for the short-term gain. So back in the day, BC, before COVID, a movie would be released in theaters. It'd stay there for a couple of weeks. Then eventually it would go to the home video market, make some green there. Then it would go to electronic sell-through. So you'd see it on your cable service to buy for $3.99, $4.99, $5.99. Then it would go to a premium service for a year and a half or two years, like HBO, Showtime. Then you'd see it on a cable network with commercials. And that timeline worked for decades. But once COVID hit, the studio revenue took a hit because movies weren't being released in theaters hit one, then they completely skipped over the home video market, hit two, then they decided to go straight to streaming after 45 days, so that took out the electronic sell-through, hit three. So the only way that these studios could make money is by increasing the price of streaming. It starts with Disney+, Plus. they'll increase the price, then Paramount+, Plus will follow, and it'll just have an avalanche effect. Every streaming service will go up a couple of dollars. They're all in cahoots. Yes, it makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I believe in that. And that art is just a money laundering scheme. Oh, you spilled some orange juice on paper? I'll give you $13 million for that. Hunter Biden. Um... <laughs> I don't usually pick on the left, but they'll get their turn in the ringer. But I think the real problem I have with streaming is that it totally devalues the content. Look at what's available on HBO Max. Hundreds of movies, great movies, and thousands of episodes of series. And, you know, of course, the Discovery crap. But if you were to own every single one of that content and paid 20 bucks per title, we're talking about thousands of dollars that would be spent and thousands of dollars that the studio would make. But it's all being given away for 12 bucks a month, 13 bucks a month. That is a steal. So as consumers, we're lucky. 
But in chasing that quick cash, I think the studios have overlooked the value of the content. And in selling themselves short, now they've lost a significant revenue stream. And when studios need money, guess who that's going to fall upon? The consumer. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it, two stars watch at your own risk, three stars standard fare, four stars worth checking out, and five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. In this episode of the podcast, I'm rewatching and reviewing The Matrix from 1999. It was written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, who helmed Bound, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, and Jupiter Ascending. It stars Keanu Reeves as Neo. This is the third movie review that I've done, which he's starred, but I've never done a career retrospective. Until now. He was born in Beirut, Lebanon, but after his parents' divorce, he moved with his mother to Sydney, Australia. A few years later, they relocated to New York City, before settling down in Toronto, Canada. He dropped out of high school at 17 and moved to Los Angeles. He appeared in a couple of episodes in TV movies before being cast in River's Edge to positive reviews. He had a supporting role in Dangerous Liaisons, which was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning three. But his breakthrough would come the next year as slacker Theodore Logan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This would lead to a string of hits with Parenthood, Point Break, My Own Private Idaho, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. He would be catapulted into superstardom as Jack Traven in action thriller Speed, the titular role in Johnny Mnemonic, and this movie, The Matrix. As he approached his 30th year in the business, he showed no signs of slowing down with John Wick and subsequent sequels. This is what I remember. Red Pill, Blue Pill, One Fish, Two Fish. The Bullet Time sequence. And of course the cast. Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. Everything else, basically. So let's jump into it. At an abandoned hotel, the police barge into room 303 to find Trinity communicating on a computer. They attempt to arrest her when she fights back and obliterates the officers. She contacts an associate, Morpheus, who tells her to get to a phone at Wells and Lake. Agents in black suits arrive on the scene and chase after her through the city. When she reaches the phone and answers it, she disappears into a vortex, or something. Meanwhile, Thomas Anderson is a computer programmer who moonlights as a hacker under the moniker Neo. He's contacted by Trinity through his computer, who tells him to follow the White Rabbit. Then there's a knock on the door where a couple of clients invite him out. He initially declines the offer, but when he sees that one of them has a rabbit tattoo on their shoulder, he decides to go. At the club, Neo is approached by Trinity, who brought him there to warn him he's being watched. She knows that he's been looking for the answer to one question, what is the Matrix, and that it'll find you if you want it to. The next morning, he arrives at his job at Metacortex and receives an inter-office envelope with a cell phone in it. 
He is contacted by Morpheus, who tries to lead him out of the building before the agents find him, but they eventually bring him into custody. Agent Smith knows about his contact with Morpheus, who they call a terrorist, and wants Thomas's cooperation to bring him to justice. Here's a quote without context. Never send a human to do a machine's job. The Matrix is an interesting film. The acting is okay from all parties. There was basically one direction. Stay stoic. And that was performed admirably. Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith was an intimidating villain. I felt like all the dialogue was one big riddle. It's like they sat down and said, let's be as vague as possible. Most of the special effects have held up, which is a testament to Mannix, led by John Gaeta, and the visual effects artists. While I like the stop-motion fight scenes in martial arts films, I find it a bit out of place in this movie. Conceptually, it should work, but it's not my favorite thing to watch. I actually find it a bit disruptive and annoying. The highlight of the movie are the shots. It's a fascinating film to watch, even if you have no idea what the hell is going on. And trust me, that was basically my state. After the first time I had seen it, I thought maybe I need to be a little older to understand this. So I let over 20 years go by to watch it again, and I am still just as confused. Now for a little trivial trivia. In 1993, Carrie Ann Moss was cast in a short-lived television series about a hitman called Matrix. The cinematography was captured by Bill Pope, whose filmography includes Army of Darkness, Fire in the Sky, Clueless, Spider-Man 2, Men in Black 3, and Baby Driver. He also did music videos for Rod Stewart, Peter Gabriel, Sting, The Bangles, and Metallica. He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Cinematography for Nonfiction Programming for Cosmos. It was edited by Zach Steinberg, who worked on Police Academy, Rustler's Rhapsody, Bound, Speed Racer, Ender's Game, and Pacific Rim Uprising. He won an Academy Award for Best Film Editing for this movie. The score was composed by Don Davis, who wrote the music for Bound, House on Haunted Hill, Behind Enemy Lines, and The Marine. He's won two Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Achievement in Music Composition for a Series, Dramatic Underscore, for Beauty and the Beast and Sequest 2032. The soundtrack features songs by Massive Attack, Rob Zombie, The Prodigy, Marilyn Manson, and Rage Against the Machine. The music was great, totally reflective of the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm not sure why industrial and metal bands always work with the backdrop of science fiction. The runtime is 2 hours, 16 minutes. It had a budget of $63 million and grossed $467 million at the box office. It was nominated and won four Oscars at the 2000 Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Sound Effects Editing, and Visual Effects. On the Ski Index, I give it two and a half out of five stars. Wah, wah. You know, that's for me personally. I didn't get it. I loved watching it. It's visually spectacular, but I need more than that. In comparison with other films at the time, maybe I'd boost it up to three, three and a half, but it just didn't do it for me. Maybe I'll watch it in another 20, 25 years when I'm senile, and maybe it'll make sense then. If you've seen The Matrix and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post throwback clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. 
A few months ago, I reviewed Bachelor Party on the Matt Watch That podcast. And in one of the scenes, a song played in the background, and I'm like, I remember that! Now what the hell was it called? Even with the help of the internet, it took me a little bit to figure out that it was called Dance Hall Days, performed by Wang Chung. Now I'll be honest, I didn't realize that they had more than one hit. I knew the big single. Everybody have fun tonight. The new wave group was formed in London, England, by Jack Hughes and Nick Feldman. They were named Huang Chung, H-U-A-N-G, after a phrase taken from a book meaning Yellow Bell in Mandarin. They released their self-titled debut in 1982 to Little Fanfare. On a suggestion from their record label, they changed the name to Wang Chung, W-A-N-G, which was thought to be more phonetic and easier to pronounce. They released their second album, Points on the Curve, under this moniker, and it would reach number 30 on the Billboard 200 album charts. It featured the single Dance Hall Days, which peaked at number one on the dance charts. They followed it up with To Live and Die in L.A., which served as a soundtrack to the 1985 film directed by the recently departed William Friedkin. The next year, they released Mosaic, which included their biggest hit, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, which reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100. It would be certified gold. In 1989, their fifth studio album, The Warmer Side of Cool, was released. Although it was a critical success, it failed to reach the heights of their previous albums. They took a break for seven years before reuniting in 1997 for their greatest hits collection, which included a new track, Space Junk. They've since released two additional albums, and will be on tour in 2024 as part of the 80s cruise. I've selected a couple of their hits, and they're all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Rock. Created by Stan Daniels, screenwriter, producer, and director who worked on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Dean Martin Show, Phyllis, The Betty White Show, and won eight Primetime Emmy Awards for The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. He is known for the Stan Daniels turn, where a character will make a statement, then does a 180-degree shift on what they just said. It tells the story of Rock Emerson, a garbage collector, and his wife Eleanor, a nurse, and their life in Baltimore, Maryland. It starred Charles S. Dutton, Ella Joyce, Rocky Carroll, and Carl Gordon. All four leads were stage actors, appearing on Broadway in August Wilson plays, and were familiar with each other's work prior to being cast in the series. It also features Clifton Powell, Heavy D, Tone Loke, Jamie Foxx, and Richard Roundtree. It aired on Fox at a time when their programming was geared towards youth and diversity, with shows like The Simpsons, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, In Living Color, and Martin. While it was never a big ratings performer, Rock did address social issues including gun violence, drugs, and homelessness. In its second season, the series was presented live, which gave more spontaneous performances from the actors. Charles S. Dutton has always been a powerhouse character actor. Outside of the cinematography, he was probably the best thing about Alien 3, but he has a very interesting and inspiring personal story. In 1967, at the age of 16, he was sentenced to five years in prison for manslaughter. While out on parole, he was arrested for robbery and handgun charges, leading to an additional three years in prison. While in jail, he assaulted a guard and was given eight more years behind bars. 
While in solitary confinement, he was allowed one book and selected an anthology of black playwrights. He was inspired to start a drama group with the approval of the warden, who allowed it upon the condition that Charles would finish his GED. While on parole, he kept his promise and finished his GED, and enrolled in Hagerstown Junior College for two years, graduating with an Associates of Arts degree, and majored in drama at Towson State University. He earned a master's degree in acting from the Yale School of Drama. He went on to appear in Cat's Eye, Mississippi Masala, Menace to Society, Rudy, Nick of Time, A Time to Kill, and Mimic. He's won three Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for Without a Trace in the Practice, and Outstanding Directing for a Miniseries, Movie, or a Special for The Corner. It's truly incredible that he was able to turn his life around. But what's sad to think that if he were just starting out today, people would look at his rap sheet and not even give him a chance. They'd say, oh, well, there are other talented people out there who aren't problematic. That's more deserving of the opportunities. That might be true. But the reason why we have recidivism is because no matter how much they want to change, if their environment doesn't allow them to, and if society constantly reminds them of their worst moment, then they're going to continue going down that path. And just imagine the talent and performances that we would have lost out on if society didn't forgive and allow him to make a living as an actor. He did the crime, he did the time, and he was able to make something of his life. That's what we should wish on all ex-felons. Society is better when we lift everyone up. Now don't get me wrong, if you're an actor living in the lap of luxury and you do something wrong, you should be held accountable for that. But after you've paid your debt to society, you should be able to move on. But if you keep getting in trouble again and again and again, you're obviously not learning your lesson, and your career might be gone in a flash. So anyway, Charles S. Dutton is a tremendous talent. Rock was a really strong show. Unfortunately, it's not streaming anywhere, so look it up on YouTube for a couple of clips. Rock was on for three seasons, 72 episodes from 1991 to 1994. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and the review. It had a budget of 2 hours 16 minutes. They followed it up with To Live and Let, to live and let Die. He showed no signs of slowing down with the John Wick. With the John Wick.